Hello, this is Josh. We're continuing with part 10 of our journey through a sunlit absence by Father Martin Laird. One of the questions in training spiritual directors is the role of authority in the relationship between the director and the directee. I was trained by the Dominican nuns of Grand Rapids to have zero authority in the life of those that meet with me. That means that I never pause and uh, give a directee instructions. You should do this. You should think this way. I never identify sin in someone's life. I never call them to account. Uh, The question then of authority is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the role and the authority of the Holy Spirit to move freely in a session when I sit with someone so the directee can search her heart, exploring where they are in the silence, where God appears in that silence, and then for the directee to listen and to cultivate her own sense of God's voice, God's truth, God's presence and love, which in time will always lead someone to clarity, to repentance, to holiness, to trust and safety. Now, there are other traditions where the spiritual director is more or less in some role of pastor or priest, where the pastor or priest does offer some sort of prescriptive insight that is in many ways just as led by the Spirit because of that unique relationship. The Holy Spirit can inspire a pastoral relationship to nurture, to direct, and to guide souls. I believe that my practice is influenced by a sense of fatigue and the awareness of pain that has come from an empty pastoral role where pastors can often be too heavy-handed and even spiritually abusive. So I address this topic here in part 10 of our journey through a sunlit absence. I address this in the middle of chapter 4, which is moving us to the second half of the book. And I address this question of authority for you and your discernment of how you have been progressing, how you have been persevering through quarantine and the political strife, the major questions that are happening across our country in terms of race and authority in our government. What I want to say to you is that the invitation can have no form of guilting you into continuing on this journey. The invitation, my ministry will never suggest shame to you if you identify things are getting too rigorous and too difficult for you to sustain your prayer. I'm attempting to offer one new episode moving along with this book per week. But that doesn't mean you need to stay in that same pace It might take you a month to be able to absorb each of these sections. 
as we move into the deeper end of the pool here in chapter four, it might be especially helpful for you to have the book in hand to spend time with on your own in between your listenings of the Invitation podcast. You may greatly benefit at this point to reach out to a spiritual friend or even your own spiritual director or your pastor, someone in a spiritual conversation to share the podcast with, to listen and to have discussions so that you can then integrate the ideas that are forming through the podcast and through the book back into your context of your life. I know that Father Laird worked really hard to put his books in sequence, one, two, and three, in a sense of progression. I may just have a different understanding of how to introduce people to contemplation than the way that Father Laird is intending. I don't believe there's any way to really be ready for contemplative prayer. I don't believe there's any kind of introductory course to take. Instead, it's a matter of sensing the movements of the Holy Spirit, jumping into the deep end of the pool, and trying to learn to swim. And when we fail, we learn from those failures. And if we're using any kind of book, any kind of curriculum to give us any insight, it is something we have to read and reread to start over and over again as the Holy Spirit is our true spiritual director. And the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us to pray and to learn how to swim. The trouble here is that the church, especially in the West, has not been able to sustain contemplative practice as something that is accessible and normal for Christian practice. There's a lot to say about why this is, about why we have forgotten contemplative practice. Books and books have been written on these issues of cultural and intellectual history. Here is my quick gloss on this topic. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, you see the Shema lists that we should love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and strength. But then if you flash forward several hundred years into Jesus' account of the Shema, say in Mark 12, he lists that you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the Hebraic vision is three internal venues of the self, heart, soul, and strength. And then in the New Testament, the Aramaic and Greek world, those vocabularies had added mind to that list. Something has developed within that distance between Deuteronomy and Jesus, whether that's 600 years or 1400 years, depending on your scholarship. So to put a pin and some study for you and me to continue is this idea that contemplative practice is an invitation back to what the Hebrews originally understood the self to be, which was much more of a unified being where the mind and intellectual control 
didn't have the same kind of power and I'll say anxiety that we have in our modern Western consciousness. So truly we are not attempting something new and trendy with contemplative prayer. What we're attempting is to return to something that was part of our initial original design by God. That before the clock, before the wristwatch, before the smartphone, or before the time card, before the computer screen and the Outlook calendar, we were designed for Sabbath to be able to rest and to be present to ourselves, to be integrated as part of the cosmos that we're at home in creation and at home and alive to God in creation at rest in our bodies, silent and receptive to God's presence and love. So again, for this introduction to part 10, If you hear anything, be patient and kind to yourself as you practice and as you continue to move forward in this journey of discovery. I am using the quarantine, the questions of the pandemic as an opportunity to document this journey and to have this available. It's out there for you to access. We still do not need to make unrealistic expectations for ourselves and to strain and strive as we pursue God. These are questions of how we can cooperate and join with the gifts of the Spirit. So let's do our practice of silence and rest. Breathing in slowly the name of Christ. Breathing out. And as you follow your breath in and out, saying the sacred name of Jesus, you're able to practice this awareness. Where am I right now? Where are my thoughts? Where are my loves? Where is my body? Am I able to be present right now? What are the obstacles? And instead of fighting or being angry about the obstacles, we join them and surrender. Yes, of course I'm anxious right now. That is why I'm here to pray. Yes, of course, my mind is full of all kinds of confusing chatter. That is why I am here to calm my whole self, to open myself more richly to the presence of God. And we sink deeper and deeper into an openness to the love and the life of Jesus Christ himself. 
by treasuring his holy name, repeating it. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see you. Amen. So in our previous discussion on chapter 4, Father Laird had turned to St. Hezekiah's three metaphors of illumination. First, the torchlight, then the moon, and then the sun. And that is these luminous sources that shine brightly inside of ourselves to give us a greater and greater sense of God's awareness. Hesychios had been mentioning that, that this was a practice in the intellect. We need to clarify here again, as I was mentioning, the difference between the Hebraic self and the New Testament self with Jesus. The ancients hadn't yet thought of the intellect as an abstract mind that was separate from the heart. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church still teaches this as the noose, the noose as the mind which is located in the heart, integrated in the movements of the way we think and feel toward the center of our deeper being. So our awareness of ourselves, our awareness of God's presence, our awareness of our neighbor comes in and through what the ancients would have called the intellect, the noose, our vision, our ability to see and hear God. And again, to be clear, this is not an abstraction separated in the sense that we're just doing math. Not that there's anything wrong with math, but we're not just thinking about the mind in its calculations apart from the whole self. So what Father Laird is doing is using the metaphors of Hesychius to lead us through the development, the growth of our awareness. So continuing again on page 66, Father writes in a section subtitled, Seeing by Torchlight. Awareness is not like a solid tabletop or flat screen TV. St. Diaticos says, Awareness is more like the sea, which, when calm, we can see right into, quote, when the sea is calm, fishermen can scan its depths, and therefore hardly any creatures moving in the water escapes their notice. But when the sea is disturbed by the winds, it hides beneath its turbid and agitated waves what it was happy to reveal when it was smiling and calm. And then the fishermen's skill and cunning prove vain. The same thing happens with the contemplative power of the intellect. End quote. The ocean depth of awareness can be gazed into. This is the invitation of interior silence. We look right into the mind, right into 
awareness itself in which thoughts and feelings appear and disappear, whether they are like troubled stormy waters or feathery ocean foam. St. Hesychius says the practice of watchful awareness yields, quote, continuous insight into the heart's depths, stillness of mind, unbroken even by thoughts which appear to be good, and the capacity to be empty of all thought, end quote. The deeper our insights into these depths, quote, the greater the longing with which you will pray, end quote. St. Teresa also knows this depth dimension of awareness. Quote, I used to be tormented by this turmoil of thoughts, end quote, she recalls. Quote, a little over four years ago, I came to realize by experience that thinking is not the same as mindfulness. I hadn't been able to understand why. If the mind is one of the faculties of the soul, it is sometimes so restless. Thoughts fly around so fast. It was driving me crazy to see the faculties of my soul calmly absorbed in the remembrance of God, while my thoughts, on the other hand, were wildly agitated. End quote. She learns from her own experience that there is something deep within her that remains absorbed in prayer even amid the whirl of thoughts in her head. St. Hesychios sees a direct link between our growth in watchful awareness and the gradual manifestation of the light of Christ. These two are simultaneous. The more stable and expansive our awareness, the greater the suffusion of awareness in light. This gradual realization of the loving light of awareness is the simplest and most profound thing that can happen in our lives this side of death. It reveals death's double-hinged doors. Whatever blessings we may receive in our devotional lives, our family lives, our lives spent in service of God and neighbor, our contemplative lives will keep us very practically focused for quite some time on the ordeal of our thoughts. This ordeal of thoughts is the making of the contemplative, whether feelings of being blessed or consoled are absent or abundant. Cultivating the practice of vigilant awareness is vital. In an open season of practice, we are so caught up in our thoughts and feelings that we think we are these thoughts and feelings and miss the distinction between thoughts and awareness that St. Teresa and countless others have discovered. The great masters presume this awkwardness we all know, and so they teach in a practical way the cultivation of awareness. When the light of awareness illumines no more than a torch does, we should expect innumerable variations of a couple of interior movements. By far the most common experience is to find ourselves forever chasing thoughts. St. Ezekios observes, quote, As soon as a thought appears in our minds, we chase after it and become embroiled in it. End quote. When we become embroiled in our thoughts, we immediately become one of the cast of characters in the inner drama. Often the lines of this scripted interiority are something like, quote, 
Oh my goodness, I've become embroiled in my thoughts. End quote. Or, quote, I shouldn't be having these thoughts. Or, I'm so bad at this. End quote. Often this script is accompanied by a demented stage director who stays out of sight but is always within our range of hearing. Quote, blaming others without relent, envy others' success, comparing yourself with others to inflame your own self-loathing, to victimize others to avoid your own pain, end quote. These inner commentaries do nothing but embroil us more deeply and add to a lifetime's momentum of deriving our sense of self from whatever it is in us that talks and talks and talks and talks to ourselves about all of this. As an antidote, St. Hesychios offers a simple practice of awareness. Quote, closely scrutinize every mental image or provocation. End quote. His suggestion is deceptively simple. Normally, we are so caught up in the mind stream of our thoughts that before we know it, we are swept along. In order to practice what St. Hezekios is teaching, we have to stop chasing these thoughts, if only for a moment. We usually find that we cannot do this very well, but with practice of this inner turning around, however, and stopping long enough to look squarely at these thoughts, we learn that we can do this, in this way, we do exactly what Jesus did during the temptation in the desert, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He refused to get caught up in the inner commentary. Instead, he recited short passages of scripture. When St. Hesychios says that awareness consists in closely scrutinizing thoughts, he is trying to place us in a different relationship with these thoughts. He's not telling us that thoughts should not be there if they happen to be there. Putting his advice into practice will, over much time, help us learn to be an engaged and receptively detached witness of all this inner commentary that appears and disappears in our mind. Gradually, we learn to stop deriving our sense of identity from this habitual inner chatter no matter how incessantly it continues to chatter. And then on page 71, Father says, This simple, sifting, spiritual skill of watchful awareness changes our relationship with any sort of thought or feeling. He then points out at the bottom of that same page, the variety of these dramas is endless, that we have a non-stop, ever-flowing fountain of distractions of our ego, of our selfishness, of our lusts, of our insecurities, of our anger and our sadness. And then on page 72, we continue. As we are paying attention to what's really going on inside of ourselves, what are the effects of the practice of awareness at this early phase of seeing only by torchlight? We grow in the ability to turn around and see our thoughts and feelings, no matter what their strength, as simple events distinct 
from the tempest of stories we relate to ourselves and likely to others about them. Whatever it is in us that grasps and craves is soothed and calmed and begins to loosen its grip. The inner chatter needs this craving in order to cling. But inner chatter cannot cling to simple awareness. It simply appears and disappears in awareness, like so much weather moving through the valley. Thoughts slow down. We feel more spacious within. That which sees the thought arise and fall is free of it and free to pray in the midst of it. This is what St. Teresa discovered for herself, and so can we. This is the first phase of the expansion of awareness, a phase we return to over and over again as needed, learning to scrutinize, learning to observe without commenting on what is happening within us instead of being dragged back into the inner chatter that serves as cloth for the fashionable outfit of a new identity. The clothing of alienation requires no emperor. With this sense of inner spaciousness, we are less reactive to and more receptive of all manner of inner movements. This spaciousness is inherently still, poised, watchful inner stillness does not mean the absence of struggle, but stillness in the midst of struggle, quote, profoundly still and in praying, end quote. So I'd like to note here the similarities between the awareness that is gained through a stillness of the heart, the thoughts and the feelings that come up inside of the radar of our consciousness, to be aware of them, to then be able to surrender these things over to God. There are some similarities here between this contemplative practice and the Ignatian discipline of the prayer of examine, the examination of consciousness. So if you're especially struggling with this practice of inner silence and stillness, and let's say you need some more handrails, some more structure and guidance, you can find on the invitationpodcast.org website under the resources tab, go down to downloads, and you'll find a PDF that I prepared on the prayer of examine. And what Ignatius has done in a similar way is help us to calm and quiet ourselves and then to become very tangibly interactive to journal or document these things that are showing up in our consciousness. And then there's some guidance on what to do with these happenings, the things that arise that we're surprised by, that seem to be constraining our thoughts and our emotions and limiting our action. The similarities here between Hesychios and St. Ignatius is the invitation to notice what is going on inside of ourselves, that we often don't even know what is pushing and pulling beneath the surface because we're so busy stuffing ourselves with so many other distractions that we can't notice what is really going on inside of ourselves so that we can then talk to God about these things. That's the similarity, is the gift of awareness. The difference is that Hesychios 
is inviting us to move past these things, past the emotions, past the thoughts, past the disappointments, into a place of deeper surrender. Whereas Ignatius, on the other hand, is inviting us into what he called conversar in Spanish, into conversation, to have colloquy, to talk to God tangibly about these things. And this is why on the spectrum of apophatic to cataphatic, again, the apophatic is the knowledge of God through our unknowing, through our sense of God's transcendence and mystery, a place of surrender. Cataphatic then is the spirituality of revealed presence, of tangible engagement. Ignatius then would be more on the cataphatic. Let's deal with the matters of our life in the light of day. Let's talk to God about these things. Whereas Ezekios would say, those are interesting facts and details of my life, but instead of trying to engage them tangibly, let's move past them and surrender into an apophatic, deeper trust. And again, we're not trying to say that one spirituality is right and one is wrong. They're just different invitations the Spirit can lead each of us into. What we are going to see here is this movement from the light by a torch into the light of the moon and then into the sun. And ironically for Ezekiel and the contemplative tradition, this is a further and further surrender into the apophatic, into the darkness. And this may seem very strange to think about the darkness of God coming by an ever-increasing amount of His luminous light. So just a little note here, this is why St. John of the Cross calls the light of God a darkness, because what happens when we stare directly into the sun, that all we see is blackness, that it's so bright. God's luminous brilliance is so bright that to us it is a darkness. And we learn some more about this difficulty of naming God, of seeing God here on page 74, as we move into spirituality that is illuminated by moonlight, the second of these three stages. Page 74. We discover something of what St. Deiticos meant when he likened our awareness to the sea that can look right into and scan its depths when the waves on the surface of awareness have calmed. This marks an important transition. St. Hezekiah described an earlier state of awareness in which we simply observed our thoughts under the torchlight of Christ carried in the hand of the intellect, quote, along the tracks of the mind, end quote. Note, however, that Christ is not considered to be an object of awareness, but the reason why awareness is becoming more luminous. Aided by the light of the torch that we grasped firmly, we had a good deal of work to do, battling with thoughts, scrutinizing thoughts, cultivating watchfulness. But now, St. Hesychios says this luminous dimension of awareness has nothing more to do with grasping a torch. Quote, 
Now the light of awareness appears to us like a full moon, circling the heart's firmament, end quote. We cannot grasp moonlight, even as we are bathed in it. Walking by torchlight along the tracks of the mind has now led us to the threshold of our center, a center that is everywhere, what the ancients called, quote, the heart, end quote. For some, this is a gradual transition. For others, a decisive breakthrough. It really does not matter. For in either case, there are several characteristics of this inner expansion of the heart. So returning to what we've said before, what is it that we expect when we close our eyes, calm our heart and mind, and open ourselves to God? What preconceived notions do we have about how God will appear to us? Some of us assume a priori, before we even begin, that God will be a being that we can imagine in our mind's eye, a father, a son, a tone of the voice, a gesture with the body, the way that God might look at us in the face. This again would lean towards the cataphatic spirituality. But here in this contemplative apophatic practice, Father Laird says, Note, however, that Christ is not considered to be an object of awareness, but the reason why awareness is becoming more luminous. If you recall in Revelation, it is the throne of Christ, it is the light of His face that illuminates the city. So if you can, for a moment, put on your scholarship, your thinking hat, the theology here is a distinction between God's essence and His energies. That God's being in His essence is so other and unlike us as human beings that we cannot look at God directly in His essence because God is an uncreated being, ultimately, and we are created beings. We cannot look directly into God's essence but we can perceive the emanations of his energies. As we move further into an apophatic spirituality, what we're perceiving in our contemplative awareness is the reflections, the energies of God's being reflected, as it were, off of the moon. So what I'll do here is enter into this second stage, the illumination of moonlight in part 11 of our next episode, along with the discourse on the illumination of the sun. So page 75, the creative momentum of returning to our practice whenever we become aware that our attention has been stolen is now completely well established. This itself implies that there has been an expansion of awareness we spend less time battling with the fact that there are thoughts stealing our attention. We have more or less stopped commenting to ourselves on the fact that we are forever commenting on the incessant commentaries in our heads. We let the mind be just as we let the weather be. Whereas before we simply believed we were this constantly changing weather, now storm, now sun, 
now deluge, now drought, now week after week of grim gray weather, the realization is dawning on us that we are not this ever-changing weather of inner commentary. There is an abiding and increasingly stable inner calm and spaciousness that allows us to behold our life circumstances with greater ease and wider perspective. It is as though, at the earlier stage, we had encountered our inner battles as we would encounter a bee inside a telephone booth. The same bees are experienced very differently now that we know ourselves not as narrow and tight, but as wide open and endless fields where the soul can, quote, bathe in its own space, as David Scott puts it, end quote, making long swaths in meadow lengths of space, end quote. This is what Evagrius calls that, quote, open country whose name is prayer, End quote. If our own practice has featured the use of a prayer word, it is not common to have to repeat it constantly, though we are completely free to. There is a practical, fundamental unity between the concentration of attention facilitated by the prayer word and the expansion of awareness. The two are as one. It is impossible to separate the concentrated plop of a pebble in a pond from the water's widening ripples of reception. With this expansion of awareness comes an inner stability in the midst of the joys or deals or tedium of daily life, however it happens to be. The present moment has an utterly reliable way of being exactly the way it is at any given moment. This paradox of the inner unity of concentrated expansion has opened up the present moment, revealing in this sunlit absence life as firm and unshakable as it is an ungraspable flow. Unshakable because it is our foundation. Ungraspable because it is constantly being poured out as sheer gift. This inner stability is the fruit of a maturing practice of contemplation. Quote, Continuity of attention produces inner stability. Inner stability produces a natural intensification of watchfulness and in due measure gives contemplative insight into spiritual welfare. This in turn is succeeded by persistence in the Jesus prayer, in which the mind, free from all images, enjoys complete silence. End quote. That last section was a quote from St. Hezekios, the top of page 77. The rising of the moon exerts a powerful pull on the earth and its waters. Likewise, the moonrise of Christ's presence in the heart's sky exerts a powerful draw on our awareness. This is different from seeing by torchlight. Seeing by torchlight focuses on cultivating skills of watchfulness with respect to what appears in awareness. Seeing by moonlight is not an increase in the things we need to be aware of, but the expansive opening up of awareness from within. Awareness opens and expands in response to the pull of the rising moon of presence. That's a capital P. The rising moon of presence in the sky of the heart. 
However, with the moonrise comes new challenges as well, for it is very easy to get caught in the allure of the moon. So this is an important moment to pause and to confess that every gain, every step of progress on our journey is accompanied by a new challenge and struggle. This realization can free us from a spiritual anxiety, a spiritual greed or lust to try to become something that we're not. This can cure us of impatience, that there will always be struggle ahead of ourselves. And in fact, some of the mystics say that the struggle only increases the deeper they grow in their knowledge of God's presence and love. We need to identify, confess, and surrender any false notions of ever arriving at some state of being that is free from struggle. Here is Philippians 3, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed unto his death. What we're saying in this distance between the apophatic and the cataphatic is the same thing as we're saying as the distance between Good Friday and Easter Sunday and why most of our Christian life is on Holy Saturday. The question of each stage of our growth is how we are growing in our ability to depend on the presence of God. My spiritual director once summarized much of St. Teresa's writings or autobiographical accounts as saying, boy, if this is how you treat your friends, dot, 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 how is it that you would treat your enemies? In the sense that there it comes with spiritual knowledge, what has been called the sacred wound. That the more we know of God and the possibilities of God, the more difficult it is for us to live in this body, to be content in this world. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I consider every gain I have a loss for my knowledge of Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chances are, if you grew up in the church, you have heard Philippians 3 before. And it's likely that you have not had a chance to take these words seriously. That resurrection comes through the fellowship of suffering. That we would be conformed unto his death. Paul talks about this in chapter 2 of Philippians as taking on the form of Christ who considered equality with God. Not something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. That emptying is this fellowship of suffering to be conformed unto death. That is the word in the Greek of kenosis. Contemplation is an active joining into this emptying of myself. And before Jesus, emptiness is openness. Not that my ideal is to be just an empty being, but I become empty as I'm open to take on the life and the love and the being of Christ. 
So again, Father Laird is saying that there is a struggle here with the allure of the moon, that even though we're progressing, there is a challenge. Bottom of page 77, he writes, After we have been long dedicated to silent prayer and experience it largely as restful and peaceful, it is easy enough to feel quite happy simply to stretch out in this hammock of contemplative practice and to enjoy a martini of quietude. (laughs) That is fantastic. To stretch out in this hammock of contemplative practice and enjoy a martini of quietude. In this case, we have managed to avoid the pull of the moon on our awareness and instead have become besotted by the moon's allure. This is not to deny the real progress we have made over the years in prayer and service. Guided by torchlight, we have learned to step carefully along the road, negotiating inner battles. There has been unquestionable development in the accuracy of our self-knowledge. We know the crucial distinction between any sort of interior weather and the mountain on which this weather comes and goes. We probably have experienced, perhaps even for long periods, an undeniable inner recollection. But this new challenge is typically that of the seasoned intermediate. Just because our practice has led us to a certain inner calm and recollection, we should not assume that we are home and free. St. Augustine speaks to this when he says, quote, Take care when a time of calm repose does not lead to laxity and forgetfulness of God. End quote. There is a way to recognize the state of awareness that indicates when this calm repose has been besotted by the allure of the moon. Very soon after settling into our practice, if not immediately after, a dull, inattentive graying out settles in, There may be the entire spectrum of thoughts flowing by, but while we are not quite caught up in reacting to them, we are more or less immersed in them and being swept along passively with them, yet we feel fairly restful and content with it all. These thoughts don't have the blaring narrative of the previous season. By contrast, these thoughts are thick and dense, characterized by a lethargic calm that is really a dulling of awareness. This dulling of awareness is not terribly far from a state of dozing off. In fact, it is not uncommon for the occasional snore to serve as a reminder to return to our practice. But often we do not fall quite asleep, and while we are certainly not alert, we find we can pray for an hour or more resting in this comfy hammock and its martini of mantra, If someone looked at us sitting in prayer, he or she would not see an engaged and vigilant peace in our face and bearing, but instead a drooping face ready to nod off at any moment. The breath is short and shallow, as far from the abdomen as possible, the body not alert but slightly hunched over. Admittedly, this hammock of prayer is rather comfy, but it is not enough to stay in this nice place. We do well to cooperate actively and work with our attention, with the support of our own body and breath. So as I stop here in the middle of chapter 4, in the middle of 
the light of the moon. For contemplatives who are on this journey, this feels to me like a cliffhanger. So as we progress, as we think of an intermediate phase of development, we can become comfortable and allow our attention to become less sharp. We can fall to sleep. And the cliffhanger is, how do we stop this? How do we continue to press on? And if at this point you don't feel that sharp pang of the cliffhanger ending, if you are confused with the intermediate stage because you don't even know if you've begun yet, then again, as I began this part 10, I want to give you the freedom to push pause and not to continue with the book for now. Perhaps this might be a good time for you to return to part one or to another place in the Invitation Podcast offerings to start again. We can recall the wise words of Thomas Merton, a sentiment that has been shared by many, that before God we are always beginners, that the spiritual life is largely a practice of beginning again and beginning again and beginning again, which you might gain by continuing with the book as is, is a clear understanding of the larger map of the terrain. I am not a runner, but I understand the, the psychological shift when in 1954, the first person accomplished the four minute mile No one had conceived this as a possibility until that year. And now the elite athletes must press on to a four-minute mile to be competitive. Before that, no one had any conceptual idea that such a thing was possible. In a similar way with our spiritual practice, if you continue with this book, even if it is not terrain that you are called to right now by the Spirit, what might happen for you is a discovery of that's possible in prayer. There is that much more to gain. What we're trying to do is to map, to lay out before ourselves the new horizons, the new imaginative possibilities of who we can become in Christ. And often we have become dull and bored with our spiritual life because we have no sense that there is tangibly anything more to access. So as we bring our time to a close, I want to demonstrate again that the invitation is a nonprofit here to serve you. It is not a business plan attempting to get bigger, faster, better, and louder. My crazy invitation to you is that perhaps you need to set the invitation podcast aside for a season. I invite you into time of discernment. Lord Jesus, what are you guiding me to in this next step? Notice what has been of help to you. I'm especially considering the severity of what our country and the world is going through. Where do you find your nourishment each day? 
when you wake in the morning, when you plan out your day, when you get anything done, when you're doing chores, when you're playing, when you're resting, when you go to sleep. What is the Spirit inviting you to continue with? Where can you risk where you can stretch yourself? This would be the ascesis, the rigor. This is Psalm 119. We are invited to be diligent. Yet on the other hand, our diligence leads us into rest and to trust. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a work to be done here to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. But when have I been working so hard in my spiritual life that perhaps I'm now striving? Holy Spirit, what are you calling me to today and to tomorrow? Breathing in the sacred name of Jesus, saying it again and again in my heart, scanning my inner self to discern what I'm called to. Amen. So if you sense in your spirit that the spirit is continuing to call you to more, something more tangible, something more sacrificial, something more vulnerable in a daily practice. Last year, the invitation facilitated two cohorts of the invitation school of prayer. One cohort was inside the prison with my friends at E.C. Brooks Correctional Facility in Muskegon. And the other cohort was outside here in my space in Holland, Michigan, with the uncertainty of COVID-19. And as America especially is rushing into further numbers of both cases of contracting and then unbelievably and sadly more and more deaths, how to translate the School of Prayer into an online format that would be complete with Zoom meetings and videos that I could develop to offer guidance and instruction. You can find a description of the School of Prayer on the invitationpodcast.org website under the resources tab. It is designed as an eight-month journey into a practice of rule of life. For the first four months, we practice the same rule together while reading, discussing, and discerning our own unique rules. And then in January, we flip over for the last four months of practicing our own rules, but to do that in community. 
So obviously I'm saying we, which means that if you have some interest in joining in the school of prayer, you will need to develop some sort of cohort. This could be simply two people that you are with. Ideally, it is six to 12. So if you are discerning in this last movement of prayer on this episode, that the spirit is calling you to more, to more risk. And if you spend time praying and considering the school of prayer description, and that stirs in you some interest in a further dialogue, please email me, josh at invitationpodcast.org. Describe your interest. We can strike up a continued conversation of discernment of how the invitation can become a resource to you. There's two ways to go with this discernment. On one hand, we want to say, wow, there is so much difficulty in the world right now. Some days I'm feeling success if I do anything. And why would I want to add more heavy expectations to my daily life in this time of uncertainty? On the other hand, there are some of us who are discerning that we actually need more help, more structure, more guidance to be able to find God in the midst of all of this confusion. I had hoped to offer two cohorts for the Invitation School of Prayer here this fall, starting in September, one here in Holland, and another one in Granville to be accessible to people in Grand Rapids. But again, there's so much uncertainty. Um, I'm already interested in trying to figure out how to translate this into long-distance materials for you. So, again, the greatest gift you can offer in joining alongside the invitation as a ministry is to think about people who might gain and be blessed from the invitation, who you can share the invitation with, become evangelistic, and help me get the word out that there are resources for formation. If you have an interest in becoming more substantially a part of this ministry, your financial support is also of great help and encouragement. You can find a donation tab on the invitationpodcast.org website. We're trusting that this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit and that He will grow this in season according to His timing. Again, it is a delight and an honor to have you listen at all to be on this journey in any way shape or form wherever you are in the world please don't be shy shoot me an email let me know how you're doing and until next time amen